Swen, how are you doing tonight? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. What about you? You doing good? Yeah, yeah, doing pretty well. Um, just uh, I actually had the day off today. I had to run around and do some some car maintenance. Not exactly the funnest thing, but you know, definitely needed from time to time. Um, so you're you're actually at work right now, and you were saying that you just had a little bit of a last minute rush walk through the door. Yeah, that's true. Um, it was fun though. I met a, a bunch of very spontaneous individuals. Uh, they were here to pick up uh, a couple of fins and wetsuit. Uh, one group is heading to Komodo for for freediving, and the other, yeah, they're heading to Perintian tomorrow. So, a little bit of last minute shopping, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Well, I, I will uh, definitely have some questions about the shop, but uh, the first question I wanted to ask you is, so how, how did you get involved with freediving? What was your first experience like? What, like how, how, did it, how did you get led into it? Right. Um, this story is probably pretty unique. I don't think you'll hear a similar story like mine <laughs> uh, quite often. So I actually got into freediving as a way to escape corporate, more of a, from a career standpoint. So prior to me becoming an instructor uh, for freediving, I was working in a global company and I was there for 10 years. And, you know, halfway along the line, you know, I kind of asked myself the question like, is this something that I want to do for the rest of my life? And very quickly I decided it, the answer was no. But then I didn't really stumble upon freediving so soon. I was actually looking at photography as a medium to, to convert, right, from, from working in corporate to kind of like running my own business and things like that. And as I started going into photography, I realized that it's not as easy as I thought it would be. There are a lot of experts, a lot of very, very, um, you know, talented photographers out there. Um, and I was beginning to feel like, you know what, maybe I ought to look for something else. And one day in 2018, um, and through social media, I came across freediving posts. And, you know, I, I remembered just the awe of how amazing it looked for a human being who is not, you know, typically meant to be underwater without any breathing apparatus. Um, you know, how, how graceful that looked. And I thought to myself, you know, I really want to take photos like that. Now, that is going to be a, a type of photography that uh, not many people are, are experts at, and I could probably do something with that. And from there on, I took my first uh, freediving course, and the rest is history. Oh, okay, awesome. So were you into underwater photography before you saw the freediving post, or was that something that just kind of converged at the same time? Definitely not underwater. So I was doing a lot of um, landscape stuff, travel and lifestyle, portraiture, um, those sorts of things, but never in the water until you know freediving came into, into the picture. And I just really thought that now this is something that I'm very, very keen in doing because uh, what I was doing in the past, when we talk about landscape, portraits, lifestyle, you kind of almost get all of that in freediving photography. And you know, since I started, I've never really taken much photos on land anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So when you when you decided to pursue the the freediving, how was that? For were you naturally around the water a lot? Was it something that just came natural, or was it something kind of you had to to overcome? you know, the a fear of water. I, I don't know if that's the story, but was it something that just came naturally? And then also, what was the, the first 
couple of courses like? How was how was that? Right. So um, I think it's a little bit of both. So as a kid, my parents they they used to bring me um, to a lot of places where I'm surrounded with water, uh, primarily vacations on the beach, um, on islands, and things like that. So I've been exposed to um, the water since I was uh, a kid, basically. Um, but oddly, when I was around seven or six, I, I nearly drowned. So <laughs> I often think back oh. to that moment. Yeah. And I'm very grateful that I did not develop a, a trauma for being in or near the water. But uh, when I started freediving, um, never was I like really, really great uh, being in the water or underwater. But um, I think, you know, my childhood of always being around the ocean and things like that definitely did help. And yeah, so the level one course, I actually did it in Malaysia in an island called Tengol Island. And I did the party freediver course. Uh, it wasn't as easy as I thought it to be, but it was okay. Yeah, I didn't struggle all that bad, but it was definitely a very, very new feeling of trying to hold your breath and, you know, adapting with the pressure, going down to at that time 10 meters deep. Uh, it's definitely not what I thought it would be you know until i actually experienced it okay okay no that's awesome that's that's a pretty wild story i feel like most people if they had a uh a, a event a traumatic event like that they'd probably stay pretty clear of the water so that's amazing that you were able to overcome that and then now you are a free diver so that's definitely that that's an amazing story where are you from originally well malaysia um i get that question a lot because uh my name obviously don't don't say that. Um, neither does my look. But when I start talking, <laughs> it gives it away. <laughs> <laughs> what part of Malaysia? Um, Kuala Lumpur, so the capital. But the reason why I have a different name and I look a little bit uh, Caucasian-like, or, or, or if you wish, is because my dad's German. Um, but I am like I was born in Malaysia and I, I've lived here all my life. Okay. Do you speak German? Sadly, no. Uh, that's one thing that my, my dad didn't really speak to me uh, much at home. We, we mostly spoke English. But on the plus side, I do speak the, the local languages like um, you know, Bahasa, uh, Mandarin, and Cantonese. I got my friends to thank for that. So um, I'm actually, uh, my mother is from Thailand. And unfortunately, I, I don't speak Thai. So that, that was one thing that I kind of regret not learning growing up. And uh, a little backstory about me. I actually just moved to Malaysia almost a year ago now. And when I first got here, I was like, man, this is very difficult to learn the language. And then I because I've learned that there's just three, you know, if not four different languages just kind of blended into its own unique uh, variety of language. So it's it's a little bit of a challenge sometimes. So it's it's pretty awesome that I feel like most people I know can speak a minimum of two, if not three languages in Malaysia, just because there's such a blend of cultures here. So tell me, tell me about how you got the the shop going, the involvement with the shop, and then tell me, I guess, a little bit about the, the shop that you have there. All right. So the shop, um, it is one of our latest uh, project, or more casually, I'll say it's our little baby. Um, <laughs> You know, it's, it's pretty wild, right, to think that I would end up having a shop because never in my wildest dream I was planning to, to start retail. But it kind of came along the way um, as I started 
freediving because like like how I shared earlier on, I wanted to make a career out of it, but more from an instructor standpoint rather than retailing. But, you know, as I was going through my journey as a freediver, I, I did struggle quite a fair bit in Malaysia um, picking up equipments because there's just not all that many options. You know, my first wetsuit, my fins, they're all purchased online. I never had the luxury to, to try them, to test them. Is it the right size and things like that? Uh, so as I started leaning a little bit more towards um, making freediving a, a career and a business, we started kind of looking at options to bring stuff in just so that future freedivers will not face the same challenges as what I did when I was uh, starting out. So that's how we kind of like started. So we got really, really minimal quantities of, of things to start with. We didn't obviously have a shop. And for the most part, I was just selling out from my house. And I had times where I have customers and students coming to my house uh, for shopping. And obviously, that's not like the best environment and the best situation uh, for, for both myself and my guests. Uh, and, you know, just lately we have enough stock, I suppose, to, to, to come up with a presentable shop. So the shop was only launched in April this year. So really, really new. Okay, awesome. And, and the name of the shop is Freedive Adventure Malaysia. Well, the name of it is called FAM by Freediving Adventure Malaysia. Uh, so we are more casually known as FAM just because it's easier to say it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, okay, cool. And and you are located in Kuala Lumpur. Yep, Chiras to be exact. Where whereabouts? Chiras. Okay. I am not very familiar. I've only been down to KL uh I think three times. And and actually the last time I was there was when I met you at the uh expo and then I actually purchased some fins from the shop. All right, well thanks for that. Um and uh no so yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very I, I don't know much about the KL area, so I need to make it down there a little bit more, but um, I, I'm not sure if you know, but I'm based in the, the Penang area. So uh, it's like about a, on a good day, about a four to five hour drive, um, short plane ride, but like, definitely a little bit of a longer drive. Oh no, I was saying that um, I think Chihau was telling me that you were from Penang. Yeah, it's a nice place. You know, I really should visit Penang more often. I think the last I was there was probably, I don't know, six, maybe five years ago. Good food. Do miss it. Oh, okay. Yeah, very good food. <laughs> I feel like I've gained like five kilos, six kilos since I moved here. So yeah, definitely the food's a little bit too good. Okay, so where where do you mostly do your training at? I'm assuming do you start out in the pool in your in the area that you're in, and then you will travel for the actual open water portion of the classes? Yes, that's exactly how we do it. Um, so when a student registers with us, we will start them off with theory. So they will get access to their theory materials. They would read in advance and then we would meet at the pool. We'll, we'll cover the important topics, questions that they, they may have regarding certain topics. And then we'll run the pool class. And after that, we would then head over to one of our beautiful islands in Malaysia for the open water um, part of the course. So the beauty of it is that by doing it this way, and we also have quite a bit of flexibility for our students to choose from in terms of their timeline, but um, someone who feels like they need more practice can always practice enough before they 
you know, they go to the island. So this is how we kind of like do it. And yeah, I think for many, they appreciate the fact that they don't have to rush a course. Awesome, awesome. Tell me a little bit about, because looking on the, the website, um, you offer three different agencies, is that correct, for freediving? So why, why would um, me not knowing much about freediving, like how would I decide which one to go with? Or is that, do you recommend or what, what, what's the, the scenario there? Okay, so the, how we have three agencies or education systems isn't really something that we, we, we've done by choice. Um, we kind of like came along the way. We didn't intentionally do it, but just along the path, uh, we kind of like got on board and things like that. And how that kind of came about is that personally for me, I'm very passionate about the IDA education system, primarily because they've been around the longest and they are a non-profit organization. So with IDA, I just feel that the content is, is really established and it's quite noble to think that the profits that this organization earn being non-profit, those funds goes into further development of freediving and research and things like that. So I think that sticks uh, pretty much with me. Uh, and that's the reason why I was very passionate about IDA. Now, on the other hand, I'm also a party freediving instructor. And that, you know, I guess it's a little bit of a, because, you know, I started my level one as party freediver. So there's a little bit of an attachment there. Um, and, you know, I thought, why not? Right? Why not be a party a freediving instructor as well? Now, I'm a freediving instructor for both party and Ida. I do have another colleague of mine, um, Chi Hao, which you've met at the fair. And he is very performance driven. And that's why he gravitates towards Moshanov, because Moshanov is very performance driven. And their content is pretty pretty in-depth as well. And if you're the kind of person who wants to get into competitive freediving, uh, Moshanov would be a good consideration. They are also you know, the only agency that offers the no-fins discipline as part of their course. So in their level one or wave one, you in wave one, you get to experience no-fins. And if you happen to go for wave two, now you have a performance requirement to meet to be certified as a wave two freediver. So we we kind of like have all these different agencies based on our personal preference, and we like to think that our customers would have similar preferences like we do. So why not you know have more options for people? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a great thing because I um so I I've just done a a, a basic I think it's called basic freediving class, and then I, I took I took mine with. SSI and it definitely um, it, it freediving is something that I've wanted to do for quite a while. I mean, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm a scuba diver, but you know, freediving, scuba diving, it's it's kind of it's it's in the same world. So uh, once I started, once I opened up the door and looked into freediving, I was like, man, I, I I didn't realize that there was so many different agencies. So I was kind of confused on which route to go. So uh, you're you're saying the, the one of them is like if if you want to get into competition style freediving, that would be the agency to go to. I, I don't even want to butcher the name. Um, it starts with the M. What is it again? I'm really bad with pronunciation. So they are known. Well, the name is Moschanov. Uh, they are a Russian brand. Moschanov. Okay. 
Okay. Okay. Um, and I, I mean, I've done a little bit of research. The the Ale- Ale- Alexia is that his name? He has a world record. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So he's one of the the best freedivers in the world, and his full name is Alexei Moshanov. So this entire system is um, is his, and because of their competitive nature of being um, you know world class athletes in the freediving uh, world, their content is is very much based off that. And you know, interestingly, Moshanov also has a level four, which not many other agencies have. And one of the passing requirements for the wave four is that you would need to dive as deep as 50 meters to certify as a wave four Oof. freediver. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> I'm like 50 meters on scuba, let alone freediving. I'd be, I'd be a little bit, yeah, that's pretty wild. Uh, t- tell me about what, what's all involved when you start getting into competitive freediving. Like how... how Tell me a little bit about that. So I'm not too much a, a competitive freediver myself, but um, I've done a little bit of of um, intensive, so to speak, training. But I think you know one of the first thing that somebody would would want is that you want to approach freediving um, as a sport, right? And then comes the entire lifestyle that you would need to kind of adopt when you're taking this route. So that would mean even taking care of what you eat and drink. Um, having enough rest, uh, because those things are really, really important. And when you are taking on the performance um, route or competitive freediving, there's a lot of trainings that gets that's involved. Um, you really got to look into little, little details. Um, and all those things is going gonna, is gonna to matter. But um, for example, when I'm doing a big dive, I would typically not eat at all in the morning. So I'll make sure that I have a, a really good meal the night before for dinner just to get all the energy and the nutrients that I need. But on the next day when I have a morning dive, I skip breakfast just so that my stomach is idle. It's not working in, in terms of digesting food um, and anything of sort. And I go that way and that to me is uh, a preferred way for me um, if I'm going to do a little bit more of a big or performance dive okay what what's a big or performance dive for you well for example like when i was going through my ida instructor course uh, part of the requirements would be to dive to 40 meters so that to me is huge um, there are other stuff like you gotta you gotta rescue somebody from 25 meters including a 50 meter surface toe with with um, rescue breaths yeah, imagine doing that with an upset stomach. You know, if you had a bit of, uh, you know, spicy food or too much alcohol the night before, it's not going to help. <laughs> that's, that's uh, yeah, I could definitely see how that wouldn't make the situation a little bit better. Um, all right, well, well, tell me a little bit more about Ida. Is, is that, you said Ida. Uh, so w- what is the, what is it, Ida 1 Introduction to Freediving? So what could I expect from a course like that? So with Ida, because Ida 1 is, like you said, is introduction. So that's where it kind of confuses people a little bit because Ida 2 is basically level 1. So if you compare Ida 1 and Ida 2, it's essentially the same thing. Everything is the same. The only difference is that in Ida 1, you do not have any passing requirements. So you would go through the course, you would experience all the disciplines and things like that. And by the end of that experience, you are basically certified Ida 1. But 
if you want to be more officially certified where you got to meet certain targets and numbers, then that's where IDA 2 comes into play. So it's technically IDA 2 is level 1 and that's where you have the performance requirements to meet. How long How long does it usually take to get from, like is that something that's offered, do people jump right into 2 if they want to get the, the certification or it, how, how does that work out? Do you have to take 1 before 2? No, you don't really have to take one. Um, you can go straight for two, um, just because it's level one anyway. Um, but I would say like the item one is more suitable for somebody who maybe, you know, they just want to have fun, right? Um, they're not into uh, working too hard to meet p passing numbers, but they just want to experience what freediving is like. Um, so item one could be a good option. Or another scenario would be maybe, let's say, for example, I go to Greece for a vacation. And then I signed up for IDA 2. But due to some situation, you know, I wasn't able to meet my passing requirements. Um, rather than leaving empty-handed, I could ask the instructor to certify me as IDA 1. So I still get a certification um, and not go back empty-handed. But then again, on the other hand, your, your courses are transferable. So let's say, imagine if I was in Greece, I wasn't able to finish my IDA 2. I just need to get a completion form for my instructor and at my next destination I could pass it on to the new instructor and this new instructor can carry on my course. So I technically don't have to restart and I can continue my course anywhere around the world. And then when you want to advance to go to, well I, I want to say three but I guess it would be two and then and then three, um, the, the advanced freediver and the master freediver, what type of things would you need to do in order to achieve that? Right, so to, to keep things simple, let's call it level one, level two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right, so let's say somebody is, uh, is a level one freediver who wants to go into level two. I definitely always recommend for someone to do a little bit more freediving in between the two levels. So after you finish your level one, put in a few more training sessions or, or island trips and things like that. Um, get comfortable to the targets or performance requirements for level two uh, before you kind of like jump straight into it because it's a pretty big jump, right? Because, you know, in level one, for example, or either two, you need to get to 12 meters. But for either three or level two, you need to get to 24 at least. And when you pass 24 meters, um, well, sorry, not 24, but as you kind of like reach 20 onwards, your normal equalization or what's known as uh, Valsalva doesn't quite work anymore just because the compression is, is so much that you don't really have that air to use in your lungs anymore. So now you have to switch to Frenzel. Now some people can do Frenzel equalization easily, but for the most part, it takes a little bit of time and practice for somebody to pick it up because it's a little bit more technical. There are a lot of muscles that you typically don't use, like your glottis and your soft palate on a day-to-day -day basis. And you got to use those things and be very aware of how to, how to control those muscles um, to frenzily equalize. So yeah, so there's a little bit of that involved. And I think that's, uh, that's a pretty big part of uh, you know, successfully completing your level two, um, being able to equalize comfortably to 20 milliliters and beyond. And furthermore, all the performance requirement um, increases, right? You, you know, in level one for either or either two, you got to hit two minutes for static. But in either three, you got to do 245 and, and all those kind of things. So you definitely want to train a little bit more before you go for the next one. I'm sure you run into this a lot 
What are some of the biggest fears that people have when, so say you're just speaking to someone, they're like, oh, I'd like to try this, but I'm not sure. What are some things that you want, that you run into that you want to, I guess, talk about saying like, you know, you don't need to worry about this. You don't need to worry about that. Like, what are, what are some things that you could talk about? So often we get a lot of students, um, they're a little bit worried about the depth. Um, because 10 meters or 12 meters is, is uh, pretty daunting, right, for, for a beginner um, to go down without any breathing apparatus. It's, it's almost a three or four stories building, right? And usually, you know, how I kind of like help the student ease their nerves a little bit is that it was very helpful if we do our dives from, from the shore where you can see the bottom. So it's less scary that way. So we usually try not to <laughs> jump off the boat into the blue. <laughs> we do it a little bit shallower. <laughs> so that's helpful. And I always make it a point that every time they go down, I go down with them uh, just so that they know that um, I'm next to them at all time. Um, and sometimes if needed, I'll just tell them, right, just to make it even clearer that, you know, don't worry about it. I'm next to you. Uh, we'll do this dive together. And one thing that Usually it's a bit of a psychological barrier is how they feel that they do not have enough breath to get all the way down and up. But typically on average, a dive down to, to 10 or 12 meters, um, you go down and up in around 30 seconds. But prior to having to do that, in, in their static, they would have done one and a half, two minutes, and some even three minutes, right? So if you have done two to three minutes on static, what's 30 seconds? So when you help them realize that, they usually get a little bit more comfortable and, and confident that they're going to get down there and make it back up safely. I, I was trying to think of this earlier. What are some of the myths that you hear about freediving that you could debunk? Like like when someone talks about, you know, uh, uh, like I, I can relate it to scuba diving. Someone's like, oh, you know, you could get the bends or, or this or that. And, and, and it's not that it's a myth, but what are some things that – like you hear that you're like, no, 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 that's, that's not true. <laughs> that's not, that's not the case. If you can think any, think of any off the top of your head, I don't know if you just see common ones or whatnot. So, yeah. Um, so there is actually one and it just happened a, a couple of hours ago. Um, I didn't correct it, <laughs> but so this myth or misconception is that a lot of people seem to think that the reason somebody can't equalize in freediving is because they are not doing frenzel and they are, they are using the Valsava approach and that's the reason they can't equalize. Now, that is true for greater depths because of the compression and the fact that you have, you know, your lungs are at residual volume and typically, you know, you can't use that volume anymore um, and hence you're not going to be able to Valsava equalize because Valsava equalization is essentially pushing your diaphragm inwards and, you know, that pushes the air from your lungs all the way up to your ears. So that's the misconception that, that I typically get. But, you know, I think a lot of the truth in why somebody can't equalize is not so much on the technique, but the fact that their soft palate is close. So right behind our hard palate, behind our teeth, lays our soft palate. And a lot of people, when they go upside down, it's a very uncomfortable, unusual feeling to be, right? You're upside down, you're underwater, you're in a breath hole, and our body has this reflex that it almost shuts your airways and, and, and some of your muscles just as a defense mechanism that you don't die, so to speak, right? So a lot of people have that reflex. And, you know, when your soft palate is closed, that air is not going to go through. The air is not going to get to your nasal cavity. It's not going to go through your eustachian tube. And it's 
ultimately it's not going to reach your ears or your middle ears to be precise and that's the reason why many can't equalize but so it's not so much that oh i'm doing valsava i can't equalize you can valsava all the way to 15 20 meters but people seem to think that oh no this person is not doing frenzel so that's why they can't equalize uh i i was just thinking about something a misconception that i had i don't know if you you heard this uh, before or if you've heard it from time and time again. Uh, but before I took my freediving class, um, I, I would hear people like, oh, you have to take a lot of big, deep breaths before you, you know, hold your breath and go underwater. And, and that's not, I mean, it's, there's a technique to it, obviously, that I've learned, but it's not just, you know, oh, I'm going to hyperventilate and then just hold my breath and go underwater. So I don't know, do you, is that something that you hear a lot? Like, it, like someone's like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. I just, you know, have to take, take a big deep breath and then go down. But so there's techniques that you can work on to practice, to, to extend your breath hold time which I'm sure you obviously go into in, in, in the classes that you teach. Right. So this is, um, I don't think we get that so much in, in Malaysia, but I think it's more commonly present in skin divers, spearfishers, because a lot of these individuals, they, they don't start off with a course. So they kind of like pick up these techniques uh, somewhere along the line, and they just think that's the way to go. And interestingly, I don't know how far back this goes, but in the past, in freediving education where there's not enough um, research and, and understanding, hyperventilating was taught as the way to go. Like in courses and instructors would say that like, okay, this is how you, you take your, your last breath or your breathe up per se. But as the sport matures, as people start getting better understanding, they soon realize actually, you know, hyper, hyperventilating brings more risk and unwanted or negative uh, conditions rather than, you know, if you relax, just breathe normally before you take your last breath. So for example, when you hyperventilate, you're actively breathing rather strongly. And what that would do is to also elevate your heart rate a little bit more as compared to if you're just breathing normally in a relaxed state, now your heart rate is gonna be a little bit lower. Now, as we know, when the heart rate's lower, it's not going to consume as much oxygen. So that's one of the, um, the differences. There is a more technical logic behind why we shouldn't hyperventilate. I don't know if we should go there because it gets pretty technical. <laughs> Let me know if you want me to go into it. If you're okay going into it, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's, it's a good learning. Uh, you know, you can kind of give us the, not the short version, but the, because uh, uh, it, is, it is very interesting because I actually didn't know that it was something that was taught in the past so that's that's news to me because i i think that was or maybe that's how i how i came about learning about it and then when i took my basic course it was like no no no, no you don't you don't do that at all like that's the worst thing you can do <laughs> before before getting into the water but if, if you don't if it's too long of a thing you don't have to go into it but if if you're open to talking about it i'm definitely interested of course sure i mean it's not going to be that long to explain so this also rides along a little bit with one of the questions that you just asked about misconceptions. So on the misconception, a lot of people seem to think that, you know, the, the urge to breathe and your contractions that you feel when you hold your breath, these are all triggered by decreasing oxygen. But the truth is, it's not. Um, your urge to breathe and your contractions that you feel in your, in your diaphragm or in your stomach is basically a trigger due to increasing CO2. Because when you hold your breath, 
that CO2 is not leaving your body and your body creates these actions and these, these uh, sensations because it wants to remove that CO2 that's building up in your body. So now how is this related to hyperventilating? So when, when an individual hyperventilates, what essentially they are doing is that they are flushing out more CO2 than what you normally have in the normal state. So when we, you know, when we are idle like this, uh, sitting down and resting, we always have some CO2 because our body is always, um, you know, changing that gas, right, from O2 to CO2. So when you hyperventilate, you're actually flushing out more CO2 than your body typically is accustomed to. Um, you won't feel it at that point of time. But what happens is that when you hold your breath, you're gonna feel easier. You're gonna feel that it's more comfortable because your CO2 levels um, were lowered in the first place. Now. On hindsight, it's a good thing, right? You're going to feel more comfortable for a longer period of time before your urge to breathe and your contractions starts to come and things like that. But what many people don't realize is that your oxygen level remains the same. You know, when you hyperventilate, you do not increase your O2 level in your body and it drops the same way as it would even if you hyperventilate or you don't. So now you're in this situation where your oxygen levels continues to drop like it normally would but your alarm your senses are delayed so it could lead you in a situation where before your body could warn you that you're on a critically low level of o2 you pass out you black out because that co2 is essentially that alarm right your body can't really tell you that your oxygen levels are, are, are depleting but it can tell you that your co2 is rising but it's just that you know without knowing that you're going to walk straight into a possible blackout you know our body is unique in a way whereby <laughs> our co2 is the one that's that's telling us you know the fact that we are low on air until very much where you're almost blacking out then you start feeling symptoms that you would have learned and read in your in your basic freediver course like um, you know tingling numbness feelings in your extremities intense heat especially around your neck area and your ears and things like that so when you start feeling those things now that is where your O2 is really, really low, and that's only when the time your body can actually warn you. But yeah, it's a little bit late. We we kind of want and need to depend on our CO2 to to tell us that you know we are reaching that critical zone. That's good information. So I really appreciate you going into that. And then just to to uh, real quick to bring it back a little bit to the beginning. So you still do underwater photography. What do you shoot with? Okay, yeah, so that is actually, um, yeah, just like how we kind of started off the podcast, one of the big reasons that I got into uh, freediving, right, to, to capture those images. To start, I was just mandling around with my GoPro. I think it was a GoPro 5, I suppose. No, 4. That's what I started with, a GoPro 4. And now we have the 11. But yeah, that was, <laughs> that was when I just started, you know, just to see how it feels uh, shooting underwater and things like that. But obviously, I very soon realized that the GoPro doesn't really satisfy the, the image quality that I was seeking for or I was looking for. So I then looked into underwater housings for my camera. So you remember how I, I also explained that I was shooting a lot of land-based uh, photos. So I was using... Um, and I'm still using the very same camera. Um, I'm using the Sony a7 III. And so that is the exact same kit that I use underwater, but obviously paired with an underwater housing so that my camera <laughs> stays alive and I bring it underwater. That's a, a great camera. So I actually, I 
I started with the A7R2 and I still have it um, and I, I do just it's it's a very uh, it's it's an aggressive hobby I would like to say um, I, I really do enjoy nothing underwater and then I uh, and late last year just picked up the a7 IV nice. which is a really nice camera yeah and um, I was like oh man I, I when I got the new one, I was like, oh, I'll go buy a housing for the old one, and then that way I'm not bringing my super expensive camera in the water just in case something happens. Uh, but the 2 is just old enough to where not many people, not many companies make the housing for that anymore. Right. So it's kind of a bummer. And then, yeah, under underwater photography is uh, – it's uh, – I mean, you know, land photography is is a whole beast, and then once you get into underwater photography, that's just like opening up a whole nother. I'm like, man, I already have a few expensive hobbies I don't need to do anymore. So, what do you like to shoot underwater? Like, just mostly free diving stuff or macro, or what's your what's your like go to? What's your favorite type of stuff to shoot? Right. So I do most, actually, all my underwater photography on breffle while I'm freediving and not on scuba. So that kind of takes me away from macro where you really need to find, stay still, and then really spend a decent amount of time at the bottom. So I'm a little bit more on wide-angle freediving photography. So usually of, of people, um, but obviously it's, it's always a bonus where you, you get an opportunity to, to take a photograph of a freediver interacting with a marine animal. You know, like what more commonly available in Malaysia would be the green turtles in Perhentian. So quite often uh, when I'm out with my students in Perhentian for our courses, we would put some time aside where we would go to um, what's called Turtle Point. So Turtle Point is interesting in the sense that it's sandy bottom with seagrass. And that's one of the main diets of a green turtle. So almost always you get green turtles uh, scraping the bottom and it's not that deep for for even beginners where it's just six or seven meters and you know some of the best photos that that i've taken are actually freedivers with 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 turtles at that particular spot where can i check out some of your work so you can go to our website um at www.freedivingadventuremalaysia.com and one of the tab that you see on the right side says the submerged gallery and there is where you would see some of my uh well, so to speak, proudest photos. Okay, okay, cool. I will definitely leave a link in the episode uh, description for you. And then uh, just a, a couple of quick questions uh, before we sign off. Um, what advice, what would be the best piece of advice that you could give to somebody that is wanting to get into freediving and, and or uh, somebody that just took their first freediving class, they're kind of new to it. What's the best advice that you could give to them? Well, I guess that's a two-part question. For new, for people that are not into freediving, looking to get into it, and then people that have taken a freediving course and looking to do more. So for, for those who have not taken any class and want to get into it, I think the biggest advice, and, and I think this is really you know, one of the best advice that you, you can get, is to take a course. Because the course is going to give these individuals the skills to do it safely and enjoyably. And on top of that, the knowledge right, of the risk involved with freediving. Because you know, a lot of time, 
a lot of media and things like that, they depict freediving as one of the most dangerous sports in the world. Well, as much as I feel that that's a little bit of a, a overkill, but I do think it, it can be very dangerous, especially if you don't know what you're getting yourself into. So when you actually take on a course, that course is going to equip individuals with that knowledge and that skill to do it safely um, and of course you know more enjoyably of course so that's like the best advice i can think of for anybody who wants to get into freediving now for those who have just started uh, i think my advice would be as much as i i want people to come to my shop but <laughs> don't spend too much on equipment but rather <laughs> <laughs> spend a little bit more money on training right so put some time aside uh you know put some money aside train with different instructors even um, just to get a little bit more knowledge a little bit more skill a little bit of uh, extra time in the water uh, just to better your skill because you know a course typically is a what two to four days course and how much you're going to learn in that that few days is it's not going to be that much but when you further invest in your education um, you'll find that everything feels so much easier uh, you meet new people along the way you're going to be able to share new knowledges and, and learn things from even you know non-instructors right but just meeting new people like, you know explore new sites and things like that so i think definitely yeah don't don't get too caught up in getting the most fancy equipment or going straight into level two and things like that but yeah take some time chill go and do some fun dives do a little bit of training along the way and freediving will become much more enjoyable and and it opens you up to more experiences that way amazing advice i love that and real quick i guess uh if someone is has not taken a freediving course and they wanted to take a freediving course is there any required equipment because i know when i took uh, where i took my scuba class it was like oh you have to have your own mask fin snorkel um is a lot of that provided for somebody that's never taken a course before yes so for the most part um, a lot of dive centers would provide you with everything you need but of course you want to always check before arriving at the location and realizing that you don't have a piece of equipment that's not provided but um, I can I can speak for our school um, where we provide everything for our students so um, I often tell my students uh, on the first day of class that you don't have to purchase even a piece of equipment everything can be on rental and it's already part of our course fee anyhow uh, and you can finish your entire level one course without having to buy anything but of course you know if you do prefer your own equipments like a lot of people prefer their own snorkel just because you know the mouthpiece and things like that yeah you can always get simple stuff to start with i think you know the simple things that you can you can start with if you're looking to get your own stuff would be a mask and snorkel but to start, you don't really need carbon fins or long freediving fins. You can even you know, do your level one course with appropriate scuba fins. So why do I say appropriate? Some fins are a little bit too heavy and stiff, which may not be a good idea. Uh, but yeah, but there are scuba fins that you know, we, we, we use uh, or can use to finish our level one course. Well, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on to the show today, uh, just because it's it's been very informative for me. Like I said, I just took a very basic class. It was a while ago, and I really enjoyed it, and it's something that I know I want to pursue more. So kind of like what you're saying, just meeting you and, and hearing some of the information that you're talking about um, has been absolutely great. So thank you very, very much for coming on to the show. It's my pleasure, Nick. You know, thanks for, for having me. I mean, this is also, it's pretty wild for me, right? I've never been on a podcast, so it's a very interesting experience and I'd like to extend my thanks to you as well for making this happen.